Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to LawPod. My name is Conor McCormick and I'm a lecturer here in the School of Law at Queen's. Joining me today on the podcast is Jed Killen, a Labour and Cooperative Party MP representing the Scottish constituency of Rutherglen and Hamilton West in the House of Commons at Westminster. I'm also joined by Patrick Corrigan, who is the Head of Nations and Regions and the Programme Director for Northern Ireland at Amnesty International. They're here today to discuss their roles in a law reform campaign regarding the prohibition of same-sex marriages in Northern Ireland, which is the subject of a keynote speech by Jed at the Amnesty International Belfast Pride Lecture taking place here at Queen's later this evening. It's fabulous to have both of you here. Um, before we leap into the topic of today, could I ask each of you to say a little bit more about who you are and your involvement in this particular law reform campaign? Perhaps starting with Jed. Yep, uh, thanks for having me today. Um, I'm, I'm Jed Killen. I'm the Member of Parliament, as you said, for Rutherglen and Hamilton West. So um, what, what's brought me into this campaign primarily is that I have always been a kind of active campaigner on LGBT rights, um, but I'm also married to a man who comes from Northern Ireland. Um, and I only was elected in Parliament last year um, in the SNAP general election. And when I got there, it just struck me that there was nobody from a Northern Ireland constituency who was speaking up for LGBT people um, and, and on the issue of same-sex marriage. Everyone who's there from Northern Ireland is opposed. Um, there's obviously no functioning assembly. Um, and there's a group of MPs, uh, particularly on the Labour benches, who believe that something has to be done uh, to correct this situation. So I've, I've joined other people who have been campaigning on this for quite some time, uh, and hopefully we will get an outcome. Yeah, so um, Patrick Horrigan, uh, as part of the uh, the Amnesty International office here in Northern Ireland, we work on a range of both international and local human rights issues. This issue of the denial of equal marriage rights to couples in Northern Ireland is a human rights matter. Uh, sometimes people pretend or deny that it is, uh, but it is. It's a matter of, uh, at its heart, discrimination, people being discriminated against because of their sexual orientation, their gender identity, because their love is not seen as equal to others and not deserving of equal equal recognition under the law as opposite sex couples. Uh, we disagree uh, and we would point to international law to to back up our argument that this is about uh, the, the right to be treated as equal, the right to a family life, a private life, the right to have your uh, marriage recognised. Um, and so as locally, we have been campaigning on this, I think probably for about eight years now, going back to the very first uh, motion that Stephen Agnew brought to the Northern Ireland Assembly some eight years ago. Uh, we made submissions to all the Assembly members then. And ever since, we have been working on this latterly uh, with our colleagues in the Love Equality Coalition that we put together around the time of the Equal Marriage Referendum in the Republic when we decided we are going to really throw our heart and soul into this and we're not going to stop until equal marriage legislation has been passed for couples in Northern Ireland. Um, and now I think we're at the at the cusp potentially of legislation, whether at Westminster or Stormont, we see success over the horizon, but I think it's still going to take some work to get there. That's great. Thank you very much. Uh, two very helpful introductions, and they make it very plain, the complexity of the question that, that we're here to talk about, um, both politically and, of course, legally. 
Uh, because this podcast is aimed primarily at lawyers and law students, uh, I wanted to focus on two constitutional law issues that strike me as particularly interesting about about your roles in this campaign. Uh, the first you sort of touched on there, Jed, which is the difficulty that's presented by a M- an MP representing a St- Scottish constituency uh, lending their support to a bill that relates to Northern Ireland. Um, when there are constitutional conventions in place uh, which arguably constrain the discretion and the, the practice of Parliament insofar as they're able to pass legislation for Northern Ireland. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that in that matter alone, but um, I suppose what I was interested in hearing from you was the extent to which you think of yourself as an MP representing only your constituents in your constituency or the extent to which you think of yourself as an MP in the sovereign parliament for the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland? I think it's a good question. I mean, I think fundamentally I am in parliament to represent my constituents. So, um, you know, that is my priority. But I don't think that that's the only thing you do as a, as a parliamentarian. And you are, um, you know, a member of parliament then that covers the whole of the United Kingdom. Um, but, you know, you know, parallel to that, I'm, a, I'm an individual and I'm a human being. So um, as, a, as a gay MP, as a gay person, I have always thought it was very important for LGBT people to stand in solidarity with one another, no matter where they live. You know, it's a global uh, movement for change. um, And I take that uh, as quite a serious responsibility as someone in a position who can do something to advance LGBT rights. Um, So for me, uh, this is about being a progressive. And as a progressive, I would want to do um, whatever I could uh, within my power uh, to advance um, the rights of, well, in this case, LGBT people. So um, I, it's never been a question for me whether or not I should um, sort of be involved in this uh, issue. Uh, I can be involved in this issue, so I am, is the way that I look at it. Um, although I accept that people in Northern Ireland might look at that as a Scottish MP, what does it have to do with you anyway? But um, the UK Parliament, you know, has an, a number of occasions. In fact, nearly all the times where there's been any progress made um, for LGBT people in Northern Ireland, it has been because the UK Parliament has introduced some form of legislation. Um, and I think that in this case, that that will be the same for same-sex marriage. So it's not, but it's not going to happen unless members of Parliament are pushing uh, for it to happen. And the government needs to adopt, I'm sure we'll come on to that later, but the government needs to adopt one of these bills or, you know, they have to take the initiative um, and they're not going to do that unless, you know, outside of Parliament as well is important. But the parliamentarians have to put pressure on the government to get that change. And it's not going to happen, unfortunately, um, from any of the representatives that have come from Northern Ireland. Thank you very much, Patrick. Do you have anything to add um, just generally about this whole question about the state of the UK constitution insofar as it regulates lawmaking for Northern Ireland? The fact that Jed's been left in this position um, with the passion that he has for the the subject um, and the absence of other people that sort of local campaigners can lobby um, on this issue and have a sort of listening ear in that in that respect. I mean, our preference as campaigners has been to have the Northern Ireland Assembly pass legislation uh, for equal marriage for couples in Northern Ireland. That's their job. But they simply aren't there. Uh, when they did exist, we lobbied, we campaigned, we met MPs or MLAs from all parties. We did the normal campaigning and lobbying thing. And we moved the levels of support upwards year on year, vote by vote, uh, to the point where they had the last vote at the end uh, in November 2015. Uh, there was a slim majority, the slimmest majority of one MLA uh, 
uh, in voting in favour only then for it to be overturned uh, in the through the use of the petition of concern uh, that the DUP deployed at that time. Fast forward three years from there, uh, we know now uh, through our contact with the 90 MLAs who were elected last year that of that number, something like 55, 56, 57 of them would vote in support of equal marriage if there was legislation going through the Assembly tomorrow. But there isn't because it is in effective suspension, has been for 18 months and will be for the foreseeable future. So in, a, in the absence of devolved government, because that's what we have, uh, we turn to the mother of all parliaments. We turn to Westminster. That is the only government uh, available to people in Northern Ireland right now. We've recently had a court ruling around a planning decision that has made very clear that senior civil servants cannot take decisions in the absence of ministers and certainly cannot uh, somehow pass legislation or extend Westminster legislation to here. So we can only look to the Westminster government and the Westminster legislature and we as campaigners on a range of human rights issues, whether it's marriage equality or uh, with my amnesty hat on uh, reproductive rights or on dealing with the past, we are also looking to Westminster to live up to their responsibilities to us as citizens of the UK, even if uh, uh, we only have selective representation in there at the moment through the MPs who take their seats. And in terms of the various processes that are available to campaigners at Westminster, um, I note, Jed, you have lent your support to a private member's bill, uh, which is one of many different procedures, of course, that are open to people uh, lobbying Parliament at Westminster. Um, I just wanted to ask a bit about that and sort of to unpack the, the, the private member's bill laid by way of the 10-minute rule um, as the procedure of choice. Um, and why it was selected. Um, reasons being, the procedure's famous for being used more to make a point rather than to seriously seek to change the law because it's such a fragile device for lawmaking. Um, and so I wondered if that was your assessment of it in advance and the the kind of utility of it as a device as part of this this law reform movement. Um, but what I would say, um, just to counter kind of that narrative, is that at the same time as you hear that about a private member's bill, it's also the procedure which has been used to legalise abortion, legalise homosexuality, abolish the death penalty. So it has got very prominent success in the past where the issue is sensitive and important enough. So I just wondered if you could talk to me a bit about your, your involvement in its use. Yeah, so, I mean, at, at the start of a, of a new parliament, there's obviously a ballot that goes that, t that takes place and every MP puts their name in for that and then they get drawn, uh, you know, a certain number of them get drawn and time's allocated for private members' bill. That's one route. Um, if you're not successful in that, the other route that's open to you is to go to your uh, party whip and ask them, um, if you can have a slot for a for a ten minute rule bill, the party has allocated so many slots throughout the the year. Um, in this case, it's two years that have been running together, um, and uh, you have to make the case first of all to the party, and then if the party agrees, you will get one of those slots. So that's what Conor McGinn will have done, um, and what he then gets is the opportunity, 10-minute rule bill. He gets 10 minutes on the floor of the House to uh, talk about what the bill is going to be about. And that is effectively its first reading. Then after that, um, it will it'll be at the discretion of the government whether it gets the time um, to be picked up. But we're having this discussion now because Conor McGinn has done that. That's one of the reasons why we're having this discussion. Um, it's one of the reasons why it's dominating the news agenda. Um, and it's one of the reasons why people are now talking about Westminster legislating in the absence of Stormont. Um, so they are effective, 10-minute rule bills, to 
bring campaign issues to the fore. Um, as you said in the past, it has you know it has meant that legislation has come about, but it does rely on the government adopting that bill. Um, it will not get anywhere unless they decide that um, this is something that they're they going to do. But it's making the, the government's life very difficult um, because I look across um, at the opposition benches, the government benches, and I see um, people are not comfortable about the current situation in Northern Ireland. They're not at ease with the fact that uh, they're in government and they're being kept in government by the DUP um, and there's no same-sex marriage in Northern Ireland. And it's the DUP who are the primary block there as well. Um, that's, that's an uncomfortable situation for a lot of progressive MPs, um, including in the Conservative Party. So I think that by keeping the pressure on through devices like a 10-minute rule bill, um, it doesn't in itself guarantee that the legislation uh, you know, will be a success. It will get to the end. Um, it's very unlikely looking at past, um, you know, there's, there's lots of 10-minute rule bills. I have another one on ATM charges, um, which is unlikely to get through either. But it gets people talking about these issues um, and it means that down the line, if there was a, another bill um, that could be amended in some way, um, that, you know, we've already tested these arguments. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of doing the groundwork, as it were. Um, we just now need to try and either find a way to force a vote um, on, the, on the subject uh, or we just have to keep the pressure to a certain extent that the government um, feels it's obliged to, uh, to adopt it. I'm interested in what you said there just about laying the groundwork because obviously the government is overburdened with the demands of Brexit and I'm interested to know um, how ready the kind of amendment to the law um, as presented in the private member's bill is. So would it really be a case of the government simply having to adopt or insert all the legal language that's already been researched and drafted? Maybe Patrick, you would be able to comment on that. There are a number of ways in which the government can help to bring this to fruition. The uh, the draft bill uh, that Conor McGinn has brought forward and Lord Hayward has brought forward an identical bill in the House of Lords with the support of MPs we know from a, from a range of parties there. Um, those those bills are good to go as far as we are concerned, and they have been through the uh, the drafting the bills at office uh, in Westminster. Um, no doubt, uh, you know, they would go through the normal scrutiny process through the various readings through the committee stages um, to get them to a point where MPs or or peers were confident uh, that the legislation was good enough. But it is essentially the bill that has been put forward for Northern Ireland is modelled on the bills that have become law already in the rest of the UK and Ireland. So there are no great surprises in there. Um, and the, the, there are protections for the churches and religious faith groups, just as there are uh, within other uh, jurisdictions within these islands. The, the government can uh, get behind either of the bills, either the, the Commons Bill or the Lords Bill, if it so wishes. And, and that's unlikely to come about without that public pressure and that pressure within Parliament. And I suppose that's the, the utility, the value of, uh, of the 10-minute rule bill to get the foot in the door, to have the debate, to have the scrutiny, to get more MPs and more peers uh, rallying behind it. And that's what we see at the moment. And we will see a build-up of that again in late October when Conor McGinn's bill is due to come back for its next opportunity for second reading. 
But there are other avenues to success, to legislation. There is the scope, and uh, Jed has already touched upon this, uh, to bring about an amendment to other legislation that might be coming forward uh, in Parliament to do with Northern Ireland. Uh, we know uh, because the, the go- that the government will have to increasingly uh, take action in Parliament to legislate for matters that are, would otherwise be dealt with by the Assembly and the Executive, which are, were, which are not currently functioning. Um, so there will potentially be other opportunities to bring amendments and and that's one other approach but there's also one other and that is simply for the government uh, to bring its own legislation or to extend the England and Wales legislation to Northern Ireland if they were to take such a step they would have overwhelming support across the benches in both houses of parliament and that is something that we are, we continue to ask the government to do as well because we think it is their responsibility as the government for all of the people of the UK to ensure equality for all of the people of the UK so there are a number of ways forward and over the coming months we will be continuing to build those relationships uh, with MPs, with peers, and indeed we hope uh, with ministers to win them over to the side of marriage equality in Northern Ireland. I, I would just add to that, I think this is much more a point about political will than it is about capacity. The, the government could definitely do this if it wanted to. It's just about, you know, is the will there? Thanks for that. I suppose whenever you mention winning other people over, one thing that comes to my mind is the difficulties presented by persuading members of parliament from constituencies outside Northern Ireland to weigh in on this issue, even though they may agree with the the policy personally. Um, I wonder, reflecting in particular on the SNP's stance on this, uh, given your Scottish background, I wonder how difficult it will be to gain their support over legislation which impacts on a devolved area when that is so constitutionally contentious? I think it is it is difficult, but I think that um, my message to SNP colleagues is that um, the situation in Northern Ireland is very, diffi- very different uh, to the situation in Scotland. I mean, I don't think... You wouldn't see um, MPs routinely calling for legislation to be uh, imposed on Scotland. That would be uh, politically very difficult. Um, I understand why the SNP would feel nervous about this because they don't want to set you know, a precedence for that, um, that same thing happening in Scotland. But I think that we have here in Northern Ireland uh, a unique impasse um, and I, I can't see any way through it without uh, Westminster taking action. At this point in time, it would be much more preferable if the assembly was back together and you know it, they they legislated for it, I think everyone would prefer that. Um, but you know there is majority support within the public, according to the polls I've read for same-sex marriage in Northern Ireland. The assembly has voted for it. You know the majority of MLAs are in favour of it. The British Parliament there's support for it. Um, so I actually think that there is a, a democratic as well as an, a moral obligation for Westminster to step in in this case. But it is very much a unique situation that you have here. Um, and I wouldn't be recommending that Westminster legislates over the top of something that's in the, in the competence of the Scottish Parliament. I think it's interesting as well that you know, quite often uh, the SNP will take something of a cue on Irish or Northern Irish issues from uh, parallel parties here. So, for instance, the SDLP and Sinn Féin. 
both of whom, despite not particularly wishing for Westminster to legislate on Northern Ireland matters, particularly devolved matters, have both on the issue of, of equal marriage got behind the idea of Westminster legislating. Uh, and I think what they've said essentially is that if Stormont were up and running, they would seek to pass a law through the Assembly. But it isn't, and they don't think that couples in Northern Ireland should have to wait a moment longer than they already have been forced to wait. And with that in mind, they essentially have given MPs of whatever hue in Westminster their blessing to try and get on with it in order to provide that relief and deliver that equality to couples here. And uh, and I hope uh, that that MPs from uh, the SNP and the other parties uh, will will listen to those voices. I suppose the only other thing that, that might be worth touching upon is how they these developments in Parliament and these um, this campaigning in Parliament is interacting with the litigation which is going on alongside it. Um, so Patrick, you might be able to comment because I know you're involved with the cases that have been um, taken through the, the High Court and the Family Division um, and... Although um, I understand the one of them has not appealed, um, I think X has, which is the challenge to the conversion of a same-sex marriage conducted in Great Britain to a civil civil partnership here in Northern Ireland when crossing the Irish Sea there. Um, so I wonder the extent to which the judgment in that case will assist or perhaps hamper the campaign, depending on how the judgment goes whenever it's eventually delivered? I mean, both of those cases potentially have some way to run uh, through the various stages of appeal. Um, as we're hoping to bring about a political solution, a political resolution of this issue uh, in advance of any resolution of the litigation. Litigation can obviously both help a campaign in highlighting that there is an injustice, but at the end of the day, still throwing the matter over to the legislature to actually to deliver uh, because the, the courts uh, don't want to go as far as effectively legislating themselves. They see that rightly as the role of, of legislators. Um, so while they, they may... The the courts may be able to highlight that there is an injustice, that there's a human rights breach, that they themselves are not able to bring relief or resolution to that for the couples involved. The other side of this is that the courts, for whatever technical legal reason, are not able to get it over the line and that there is a, an unsuccessful outcome through the litigation for the couples involved in those cases. But it still doesn't take away the, the very apparent injustice and inequality that people themselves recognise the very fact that we have 70% plus of people in Northern Ireland want to see uh, want to see equal marriage legislation speaks for itself, that people are able to recognise an inequality, a piece of discrimination when they see it without waiting for judges to tell them that that's the case. And yet our own judges will probably feel bound to sort of hold back from pronouncing new fundamental standards unless there's some degree of quote-unquote consensus at a European level over the question of same-sex marriage. And I wonder how um, the the view of Justice O'Hara at the first instance, which was that uh, the European authorities haven't yet reached that view, um, how that um, sits with you in particular, Jed, um, as an interpretation of this particular human rights norm? Well, I, I was quite surprised, was quite surprised with that because that. I think that, I mean, you, you look at the states, and obviously there's a different constitutional setup, but um, we've seen the progress that's been made um, across the United States and more conservative 
um, parts of, of the United States is because the decision at a federal level was that um, that, that, that same-sex marriage should be legislated for. So I would like to see Europe actually taking a bit more of a stand on this. But, I mean, Northern Ireland, as far as I know, is now the only place in, in Western Europe that doesn't have um, same-sex marriage. So there is a, a unique um, situation here that, that cannot be resolved anytime soon unless uh, the government takes action. And I think the UK government has an obligation to do that. I think that's that's a really interesting point. You know, one of the things I've written about in some of my research is how the consensus is clearly moving in that direction. One of my fundamental critiques of Justice O'Hara's judgment was that I felt he overemphasised um, the kind of staticness of the Strasbourg view in uh, with reference to the fact that we have minority judges on that court expressing... Um, expressing their willingness to sort of revisit it and the fact also that it was a, a sectional decision most recently and there's been several sectional decisions of the European Court of Human Rights which has kind of decided the issue since the Grand Chamber had an opportunity to consider it last which is another factor I think holding back progress in on a precedent basis you know speaking legally um, so again I, I, what I'm hopeful and I'm, I'm kind of what I think is interesting is is, is noting how the constitutional, political, politically and uh, judicially interacts because it seems to me that by uh, raising the issue in Parliament in the way that you have um, feeds into the judicial interpretation process of what the constitutional norms in this state are. Um, so I don't think they are separate and apart, mutually exclusive. And so um, I'll be very interested to see how the Court of Appeal judgment goes and whether in light of all the debate that's happened since uh, O'Hara gave his first judgment, whether um, a different view is reached. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's worth noting that uh, the courts, whether at a, a local or a European level, uh, legislatures and public opinion, all of these strands that can bring about social change, legislative change, they're all, whether, whether it's recognised or not, they're all intertwined and, and constantly overlapping and influencing one another. And so the fact that tens of thousands of people have taken to the streets of Belfast year after year has an influence on political opinion. Uh, that in turn has an influence on what legislation passes and in turn has an influence, I think, on how judges look at these matters. Judges, understandably, do not wish to go out too far out in front of where they feel public or political opinion is. But there's one clear direction of travel and it is towards equality, whether that's in Northern Ireland or across the Council of Europe countries as a whole. So I've no doubt that uh, the European Court of Human Rights will get there. It just isn't there yet because quite often on these issues, it takes a, a fairly conservative approach. It leaves a wide margin of appreciation uh, for the, the national government, the national legislatures, um, and it waits until it, it, there's, if you like, a tipping point. And perhaps it, we, are, we are around that tipping point now, I would argue, in terms of uh, the the whole uh, Council of Europe member states. Uh, we certainly passed it some time ago in Northern Ireland in terms of where our, uh, the people are and in terms of even where the majority of politicians are. The fact we don't have equal marriage legislation now is down to the quirks of the Northern Ireland constitution in terms of the Northern Ireland Act and particularly the petition of concern. And that is an issue that we are continuing to raise uh, with the Northern Ireland political parties as they look at potentially at another round of talks about restoring devolution in the autumn and beyond because what we need, yes, is restored government, but it needs to be a government 
fit for all of the people and fit to legislate for all of the people. And it's failing those tests time after time uh, over recent years. And I think, uh, I hope that we do see a return to devolved government uh, in 2019. But it will need to be a government that is fit, for instance, to pass legislation on equal marriage. And I think if it can't do that, uh, it has failed. Uh, and our constitution, our legislature, our, our system of government is failing. And I think uh, this is an appropriate point for those uh, for that system of government to be revisited by our parties so that when they do get back in government, they can govern for everyone. Well, that's a nice way to end the podcast, I feel. Um, I want to thank you both again thank you. for coming along and participating. I'm very grateful for it. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by me, Conor McCormick and Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks again to Jed Killen, Patrick Corrigan for taking part. You can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website go.qub.ac.uk forward slash LawPod. And please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topic covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Conor McCormick. This is LawPod.